chapter 8, verse 6, uh, though I'll read verses 5 through 8 for context, but our focus this morning is solely on verse 6. Hear God's word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the carnally minded is death, but uh, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. There's the focus. Verse seven, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the gift of your word. And we thank you for the way that your word uh, is so rich and so full and so challenging and so encouraging. We ask you, O God, that now through the preaching that you might uh, illumine the very words that we've read and bring them with greater force and greater vigor into our souls, enlivening, enlivening us to a greater exercise of faith in the things which are said here about us. Amen. Well, here are verses of uh, what I would call surprising richness. I assure you, I had every intention of preaching one sermon on verses 5 through 8, and yet here we are uh, on the third sermon. Uh, So I say surprising richness, uh, although some of you have have told me, uh, and I have been encouraged by this in my now three sermons, that uh, you're glad that I've taken my time with it. Uh, Though I I would say perhaps not so surprising if, well, if you read John Owen on spiritual mindedness, uh, which is based upon these verses. And perhaps now at the end, not so surprising because we realize, well, how rich these verses are. Uh, I I must confess to you uh, that each of the last two sermons, uh, I had an entire closing section on verse six, which I never got to. I just, well, I just had to wrap the sermon up, uh, realizing I had filled up the time. Would it interest you to know that uh, John Owen in his work bases the entire work on that single verse? And so for all that I've said and all that I've quoted from Owen, uh, I still have not discussed what is really the heart of his work, which has been so helpful to me. And that is to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You may have wondered why has he said nothing about that? Well, here's a sermon on that. Speaking more broadly of all of these verses on the subject of spiritual mindedness, I would confess as well uh, uh, something of a burden for this theme, uh, a burden that I would say I had already, but that's been growing in me as I've been preaching these passages, as I've been uh, these verses I mean, and as I've been reading Owen and contemplating upon the, the message of these verses in light of the state of the church. Spiritual mindedness, something which. I would have to say, and I, I, I think you would agree, is, is, is lacking both in myself and in others. In the preface, this isn't Owen, but this is whoever wrote the preface, and at least this edition which I have. Another reason for writing this treatise, the writer says, was Owen's concern with the low spiritual and worldly condition of many professing Christians. This treatise calls Christians away from the love of the world 
and from conformity to it by uncovering the sin and the danger of such worldliness. The low, the low spiritual and worldly condition of many professing Christians. I think you would agree with me in saying that is the greatest, uh, the greatest shortcoming in the church today. I see so little today in the church, and I would include this church, and I would include myself in what the, uh, of what the Puritans call heavenly mindedness. Those believers who seem uh, as though uh, Thomas Watson says to live in heaven before the time. Their thoughts, their life is full of heaven. It's as though they're not on earth, but they're in heaven even now. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 verse uh, 2, set your mind on that which is above where Christ is seated and where you are as well. And from whence you will, uh, from whence you will be uh, revealed with him in glory on the last day. Well, I'm saying I see little of that. And in an attempt to remedy that, I offer these sermons. And look at what Paul is saying here. He's telling us something that is wonderful and that ought to capture our hearts. Namely, that the new man in Christ has this newfound capacity to think spiritual thoughts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says at the end, you have the mind of Christ. That is to say, your mind is being patterned after Jesus Christ. I was reminded of something that was said often while I was in seminary. Uh, The famous line of Cornelius Van Til, that the, the goal of the Christian is to think God's thoughts after him. I can't think of a better way of summarizing the, the burden of these verses, that the goal of the Christian life uh, could be stated in just this way, to think God's thoughts after him, that our minds would increasingly be conformed after the mind of Christ, so that the things that he thinks and the things that he cares about in his heart and that animate him would animate our minds and our hearts and our souls. But did you realize, Paul says, you have the mind of Christ already, Or did you forget already? You remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, having said that. I couldn't address you as spiritual people because you've forgotten. Because you're still living and thinking like carnal men. The amazing thing Paul is saying and that I am saying is that this is what the Christian is. This is what he's capable of. This is what is true of him. He didn't have this ability before. While he was carnal, while he was in the flesh. And any man today who is still in the flesh has no capacity for spiritual thoughts. He has not the mind of Christ. He cannot think God's thoughts after him. But the Christian can and the Christian does. Another way to put this distinction is in terms of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, look at the way that the Gentiles live. They are so full of worry. They're so full of distracting care. They're always thinking about what they're going to eat or what they're going to wear or what the world thinks of them. That's that's what fills the mind and the thought life of the Gentiles, the unbeliever. But the man, Jesus says, who, who belongs to the kingdom of God and to whom the kingdom of God belongs. This man lives and thinks in an entirely different way. He doesn't think or concern himself so much with those things, for he knows that his father in heaven cares for him. The whole of his inner thought life is different. And so the crucial test is really this. And if you read Owen, you'll find this straight away. The real test of what is true of you, the kind of person you are, whether you are a spiritual person or a carnal person, is simply what do you think about? What is it that fills your mind? What do you set your minds on? 
What thoughts are natural to our minds when they are relaxed and at ease? Do we find it easy to think spiritual thoughts, especially in our better moments when our minds are alert and capable and not tired? Or do we find difficulty in ever bringing our mind to the contemplation of that which is spiritual? Let me say that it is the common testimony, not only of myself, but I believe of so many of you and of so many Christians, that it is difficult. We do find difficulty in thinking spiritual thoughts. It isn't so easy. That's what we say. And that may be partly due to the fact that we have not adequately appreciated what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse, namely, and here we come to our theme, that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Do we have any idea what that means? Do we realize what the Apostle Paul is telling us here? Do we know what it means not only to be spiritually minded, but to enjoy life and peace as a result? Or has that whole idea simply slipped our notice? Indeed, let me say again, so important is this single idea to be spiritually minded as life and peace that this work, which I keep quoting, Spiritual Mindedness by John Owen, he based the entire treatise on that single verse. Well, notice once more as a first point that this is presented in terms of a contrast. Paul does not simply tell us the positive, but he tells us the negative. He says to be carnally minded is death. That's the first thing. And then on the other side. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Well, look at the first side of the contrast is the first point, namely to be carnally minded is death. To be carnally minded, Paul has already told us, and this is the position of the unbeliever. And it is sadly the state at times, even of the believer. It is to set one's mind on the flesh. He says that in verse five. That's what characterizes such a person, which means He's setting his mind on, he's thinking about, he's desiring and longing after that which is carnal, that which is sinful, that which is unspiritual. In in, in other words, such a person, Paul is saying, is devoid of spiritual thoughts. This is how the psalmist puts it. The wicked is proud and his proud, um, excuse me, in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. There is an absence of the thought of God in the mind of the unbeliever. He thinks not of God nor of the things of God. And when he does, when he tries to imagine what God is like, he invents a God according uh, to his own liking. But here is the emphasis of verse six, that to be in such a state is a kind of spiritual death. To be carnally minded is death, not leads to death, but is death. The state of his mind, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, is darkness and futility. His mind is darkened in his understanding. He is not capable of comprehending nor thinking the thoughts of God. He is, as Paul says in another place, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, dead in trespasses and sins. The whole of his inner thought life and thus the bent of his life is set in opposition to God. And so he's dead, Paul says. Spiritually, he's dead. He, he has and knows nothing of the life of God. He enjoys it not. He's God's enemy. His thoughts are not intent on pleasing God. Indeed, they cannot please God, he says in verses 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why? Because of the mind. 
The mind is not intent on pleasing God. The mind is intent on sin. And so if you look at such a man, his condition is not simply that of decay or sickness. What Paul is saying is that such a man is dead spiritually in a total and a complete sense. And there is no hope of moral renovation unless the whole of his mind is changed or renewed. In other words, such a person, the carnal mind, cannot simply decide now to think spiritual thoughts. No, he has to be made new. He has to be born again. And so verse 6 is offered as a reason for what is said in verse 5. The reasons that the carnal mind, or the reason, excuse me, that the carnal mind sets its mind on that which is fleshly is because he's spiritually dead. To be carnally minded is death. That's the first point. And that serves as an essential backdrop to what he says positively in the second part of the verses. The second point, namely, that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And we ought to look at these things in turn. First of all, life. Obviously, life here uh, represents the opposite of death. Uh, the, the, The spiritual death I was just speaking of. The darkness and futility of the mind of the unbeliever. Well, here is a kind of spiritual life which one enjoys as a result of being spiritually minded. As Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4, you don't have uh, that darkened, futile mind anymore. Your mind has been enlightened. It is alive. That's the idea here. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse, verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's abundant life, which is offered to believers and which believers enjoy. And what that abundant life means specifically in the context of what Paul is saying, that to be spiritually minded is life, is that the believer enjoys this life because he thinks spiritual thoughts. That in exercising this newfound capacity for spiritual thoughts, he is enjoying the abundant life which Jesus came to bring. And it is only in the context and the exercise of doing such things. For the opposite is also true that when the believer uh, fails to do so, when he is setting his mind as Peter did or as the Corinthians did on the things of men, well, then he's not enjoying this life. He knows not in that moment, at least, the abundant life which Jesus came to give him. But when he is doing so, when he is exercising his mind, his new mind, in the enjoyment and the contemplation of the things of God, then he is living, he's alive, and he's growing in this life. And yet it is equally true to say, from the other direction, that the reason he thinks such thoughts is because he's alive. So that to be spiritually minded is life, yes, but also to be alive means that we are capable of thinking spiritual thoughts. Both things are true. It's true in both directions. We think spiritual thoughts because we are alive, we've been made alive, but also to the extent that we think spiritual thoughts, so we enjoy the blessing of life. Well, let us see what is meant by life here. And there's four senses uh, which I could detect. The first of which is the most obvious and natural, namely that of justification and life. Uh, So often Paul already, and you remember the master theme of the whole epistle, is justification. And so often Paul has connected the blessing and the gift of justification with the gift of life. In just the same way that he connected uh, the outcome of the carnal life, death, with sin. 
the wages of sin is death. The reason that we, we die is because Adam sinned and we sinned along with him. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men because all sin. That's the context. Sin, uh, death is the result of sin. They're bound together. But on the other side of that, what you have to recognize, Paul is saying, that the opposite is also true. That the gift of justification comes freely to the believer who's in Christ. Which means he's declared, he's considered righteous in the sight of God. But uh, as a sure outcome of that is the gift of life. I, I was reading this week, someone said, we die because Adam sinned. But we live because Christ obeyed. And so you have to look at justification, the gift of justification in connection with life. He says, verse 15, the free gift is not like the the offense for by one man's offense, many died much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. For by the one man's offense, verse 17, death reigned through one much more. Those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So life is the corollary. It's the outcome of justification. And Paul is saying that those in whom the righteousness of God are being fulfilled. Romans chapter eight, verse four, are those who are alive. They have the gift of life imparted to them. Jesus describes it as eternal life. The gift of grace. This is something which. A man can never lose, nor can anyone take it away. A second sense is newness of life in the spirit. Chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even, even, uh, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Chapter 7, verse 6, But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And as Paul expresses here in Romans chapter eight, we uh, believers are walking according to the spirit. And why is that? Well, for this reason, he says in verses nine and ten, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you or if Christ is in you, verse 10, it's the same idea. God is dwelling in you by his spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. And as a result of that, he's given you new life. He's made you alive to God along with Christ. Chapter uh, chapter six, verse 10. You're no longer dead in sin. You're no longer walking according to the course of sin or according to the flesh. You're walking according to the spirit, Paul says. And so life is not only the gift of justification, eternal life, but it is also something that is seen in the way that you live. The newness of life. The way that you walk, the way that you live, Paul says. Life is more than being alive, you see. It's the way you live. It's the kind of person you are, the quality of your living and so on. And the Christian lives in a certain way, Paul is saying, as a result of walking according to the spirit. The third thing is this. As a result of being alive, there is a capacity for spiritual thoughts, which is one of the primary ways this new life manifests itself. The believer who is made alive, Formerly dead and sin, now alive, raised with Christ, is inwardly full of the motions and activities of the soul which are gracious and spiritual. 
This sets him in total contrast to the death, the spiritual death of the unbeliever. Now, uh, now you could say uh, his soul is full of gracious activity and motion. He is capable of delighting and enjoying spiritual things, contemplating and growing in the, in the knowledge of God. Why? Because he's now alive. Another way to put this is the way our Lord put it in John chapter 7, verse 38. Uh, well, verse 37 If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he says in verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, it's not just true of him that he's come to drink and now he's made alive. It's also true to say of him that out of his heart is the flowing of living waters. And what is that flow? It's the, the outflow of this life. Which God has implanted in the soul, the inward motion, the activities of the spirit. Another way to put this is. Uh, now, the four, fourth point, that as a result of this, he can. He's capable of growing in spiritual things, which is a key facet of life. Life is not stagnation. Life is movement. Life is the flowing of water, Jesus says. Life is growth. Life is warmth. Never stagnation. You think of the newborn babe who comes into this world. What is it you look for? You look for motion. You look for activity. You look for growth. These are the indications of life. So it is for the believer. And so the Christian man made alive in Christ is not only made spiritual in his outlook and thinking. He's not only capable of it as a result of his conversion, but he's able to grow in these things and to move and to operate in this new realm. He's moving. He's growing. He's advancing. That's how you know he's alive. And as a result of that, as he grows and as he exercises and as he advances in this new realm, the realm of the spirit, he's made more and more alive. He enjoys life more and more, the abundant life which Jesus promised to him. So he thinks spiritual thoughts and he's able to grow in them because he's alive. But also it's true of him that to the extent that he does so, the more he enjoys this life. He's living life in this abundant way, or as Owen says, he's living life to the full. He's living life as it's meant to be lived, just as God intended the life which is set uh, on the contemplation and full of God. To be spiritually minded is life, but to be spiritually minded is also, Paul says, peace. And we know several times in John, Jesus says, not only I came to give you life, but I came to give you peace. My peace I give to you. That's the gift of Jesus to his people. Now, why does Paul add peace here? To be carnally minded is death. Well, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Well, it's because of what he says next in verses 7 and 8. He describes the unbeliever as the enemy of God. But here is the believer. The believer is at peace with God. To be spiritually minded is peace. Those who are justified or having been justified by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God. Here is the one with whom God is pleased and who is capable of pleasing God. John Murray is very helpful here when he says. Peace can readily be seen to be the correlate of life, which involves tranquility of heart and mind. Peace is the antithesis of the alienation and misery which sin creates. And I agree with Murray that he says when he says that. Peace with God, that's the first thing, but it isn't. The primary thing that Paul has in mind here, it's more like the fountain or the foundation of what he's really describing. What he's talking about is the mind. 
He's saying that to be spiritually minded is peace. Of course, such a man is at peace with God. That's why his mind is at peace. But he's really talking about the mind, to be at peace with oneself, to be at ease, to enjoy peace of mind. And this goes along with life. The mind of the believer is life. It is alive. And so it is also a mind which is at peace. Peace can readily be seen to be the correlate of life, Paul says. It's an inner trans, uh, excuse me, John Murray, not Paul. It is the enjoyment and the experience of tranquility. The idea of what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 6. The opposite of being full of fretful and anxious concern about the world. Now that's one thing, but there's something even worse than that, and that is the life of sin. The life of sin is something which sets a man at odds with himself. He enjoys nothing of the inner tranquility or peace that is described here. He's a man who's, who's, whose heart is like a storm. A man whose conscience is ever against him. He's a man who is, uh, who is not at ease. He's ill at ease. But Paul says here that to be spiritually minded is peace. The man who sets his mind on spiritual things here is a man who's not at odds with himself. He's not ill at ease in this world. His mind is not full uh, of fretful care and concern and anxiety and, 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 and an accusing conscience. No, here's a man whose mind is composed. It is tranquil, though the world is against him. Though even indeed he's conscious of his own sin. Still, he finds he's at peace because he set his mind on the things of God, which are greater than the things of men. Always great, great peace of those who keep your law, says the psalmist. Great peace. That is a peace of mind, a peace of heart. People who are not so easily disturbed by outward circumstances, even in the midst of the storms and the uncertainties of life. You see, such a person is able to think spiritual thoughts and to maintain a spiritual outlook. A trial doesn't come along to such a man and throw him off and cause him once again to act and to think like the Gentiles. No, even in the worst uh, forms of persecutions and trials, still he is spiritually minded. And because he's spiritually minded, he's enjoying peace. And yet I could also say in the other direction that to the extent that he enjoys this peace and because he enjoys this peace, so he is able at all times to think spiritual thoughts. But when his, when his mind and his heart and his, his inward soul is all out of sort and bent out of shape, what he finds about himself is that he cannot think the things of God. And so that brings me then to the third point, And that is simply to state the matter again, as Paul does. And uh, that is to say, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's the great thing we need to see. If we want to be spiritually minded, we need to see that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Another way to put that is, do you want life and peace? Is that the thing that you desire more than anything else? You say, well, I want a great and an easy life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying no matter how hard things get. No matter what kind of trials come to you as a result of being a Christian, still you enjoy life in peace. Is that what you want? Well, that's the message of Paul here. And that's my message to you. Let us see, beloved, first and foremost, that it is true already. That is already the position of the Christian. It's true of you already to say that just as you are walking in the spirit, you are living and operating in the realm of the spirit. Because you are a Christian, you are in Christ. So it is also true to, to say of you. 
that such a position is life and peace. You are alive. You're at peace with God. But it's also true to say, and this is the thing we really want to know, is the thing we really want to enjoy, that to the extent that we are spiritually minded, to the extent that we are thinking the things of God, so we will enjoy life and peace in this abundant and full way. And we will grow all the time in our enjoyment of them. Whereas it is also true, I say again, that to the extent that our thoughts are worldly, we will fail to enjoy life and peace in this life. And so we want to know how to be spiritually minded in order that we might enjoy the blessing of life and peace. Let me acknowledge, as Owen does, the difficulty in doing so. He says, to meditate on heavenly things, we must meditate on their glory and the glory of God in them. But man's finite mind is overwhelmed by such infinite glories that he, is no, that he has no idea how to begin to think about them. We lack skill and ability to think rightly about invisible things. In other words, Owen is saying that part of the difficulty here, which he acknowledges, is that we are setting our minds on the very things that we cannot see, for we walk by faith and not by sight. But here's something I cannot see. How am I to set my mind upon it? How am I to fill my thoughts uh, with such things? Admittedly, this is difficult. Owen also says that uh, the, more, uh, the more inward and spiritual the duty is, the readier the soul is to decline it. So admittedly, this is among the most difficult things a Christian will ever engage in. Focusing his mind, living his life in the realm of the spiritual. Well, I offer two directions. And the first is, as I, as I said last time, read Owen. My direction is read Owen. Get a hold of this work, spiritual mindedness, read it. Or at the very least, I gave you an insert in the bulletin to get you started. Rules for spiritual mindedness. Here, I hope, uh, and it comes from this work, by the way. It's a summary of it. Here's something, I think, uh, to get you started in the meditation of it. And if you were to look at my copy, it's, it's all worn out. <laughs> Keep it in your Bible. Read it often. Wear it out. That's my first direction. My second direction is a series of points, which is more or less a summary of Owen. First of all, watch and pray. You remember our Lord said that often. Watch and pray. Against what? What, it is, what is it that you're looking out for? Well, you're looking out for and praying against uh, the, the, the incursions of the world into the soul. The advancements of unspiritual thoughts. Avoid such things that are apt to put the mind in an unspiritual frame. You know what I'm talking about. You know the things that, that throw you out of uh, a spiritual mind. The things which fill uh, your soul and your mind with the world, which uh, inflame that which is carnal about you. Realize that sanctification is a constant battle for the mind and that the enemy is active. So, too, is the flesh. To be a Christian is to be at war. Second, take care especially not to allow that which is lawful to get the greatest share of our thoughts and affections. You fathers who think so much of your families and of your vocations, I'm, I'm right there with you. You mothers, you children, these things are lawful, I'm saying, but they ought not to, to get the better part of your heart and of your thoughts. For when thoughts of this world, world fill our minds, even those things which are lawful and not sinful of, our, of themselves, we're in danger of becoming carnally minded. 
Consider, Jesus says, where a man's true treasure is. Is it here or is it in heaven? Ask yourself, what gets the lion's share of your heart and your thoughts? The things of this world or or, or the things of heaven? Number three, consider why it is that God gave you life and peace. You who were enemies, dead in trespasses and sin. Was it not that you might devote the whole of your life now to spiritual things? See that the only life uh, worth living is a life full of God. Life lived for him in his glory. Number four, use such means as are apt to fill the mind with spiritual thoughts. And the more spiritual, the better. Here we see the value of reading spiritual works. What, what is the value of that? Well, here's the value of it. It's that it fills your mind with spiritual things. And the more spiritual, the better. There's so much garbage. There's so much trash out there today. Read the Puritans. Read the Reformers. Why do I say that? Because they're the most spiritually minded works you can read. So likewise, listen to sermons. I've heard it said that a sermon is spiritual truths addressed to spiritual persons in a spiritual way. Is that how you view the preaching? Is it, a, is it an opportunity for you, once again, to be brought into the contemplation of spiritual things? To fill your mind with spiritual thoughts? To transform and renew your mind? Likewise, remember that the time is short. And this is indeed a question of time. Spiritual discipline requires effort on your part. And you will never grow until you begin. Number five, seek to perform spiritual duties in a spiritual manner. Which is to say... Cultivate and maintain a spiritual frame of mind at all times, even when dealing with the things of the world. Beware of a, of a carnal and a worldly outlook. Have an eye for God in all that you do. Remember, as Paul says, we do not live by faith, or excuse me, by sight, but by faith. Such a spirit is opposed to all that is mechanical, formal, worldly. It's the spirit, as Paul will later says, of the sons of God. A man who's acquainted with God, a man who knows what it is to live in his presence, to live by faith and not by sight. You say, well, I don't have a spirit. Well, then cultivate it. Seek to be spiritual persons. And then lastly, do not lose heart or give up. I've told you the discipline is difficult. In fact, there may be nothing more difficult even for for, for a Christian person. Well, I say to you, persevere until such thoughts become easy and natural. Do not give up until you become a heavenly minded believer. I close uh, by reading what John John Owen says uh, in his work. To give up because we are not immediately successful is a fruit of pride and unbelief. If we get nothing out of meditation but a renewed sense of our own vileness and unworthiness, We are still the gainers, but practice makes perfect. Those who conscientiously persist in this duty shall grow daily more enlightened, more wise and more experienced in spiritual things until they're able to meditate on them with ease and success. And may that be true of us with time and persistence. Amen. And let us now come to the table together. Matthew 26, 26.
And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, you will not or I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, I, I, I was at pains last time to stress that the Lord's Supper was uh, just the kind of thing that tests us as spiritual persons. Do we discern the spiritual truths which are before us or do we just see it as a carnal display of bread and wine? Using our uh, book, we find five points which are stressed here. It tells us that this is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but a remembrance of his death. Number one, but number two, it's not a mere memorial but of Christ's sacrifice, but it's a means of grace by which God feeds us spiritually in his son, by his son. Number three, the, the sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of sins and the nourishment and growth in Christ. Number four, it's a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other. And number five, the supper anticipates the consum- consummation. So the book also says, as we are warned not to come in an unworthy manner, that this warning is not aimed to keep the humble and contrite from the table of the Lord, as if it were for those who were free from sin. In fact, it is for sinners that our Lord gives the supper as a means of grace. Through the elements of bread and wine, our Lord graciously gives himself and all his benefits to everyone who eats and drinks in a worthy manner, discerning the body of the Lord. It's one thing to eat and drink in a worthy manner. It's very different, however, to imagine that we're worthy to eat and drink. We dare not come to the Lord's table as if we were worthy and, and rec- uh, righteous in ourselves. We come in a worthy manner if we recognize that we are unworthy sinners who need our Savior. If we constantly discern his body given for us, if we hunger and thirst after Christ, giving thanks for his grace, trusting in his merits, feeding on him by faith, renewing our covenant with him and his people. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of uh, your son, now signified and sealed through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we thank you for what a full service we've had, for we've had baptism, now we have the Lord's Supper, and we've had preaching. There isn't anything in this for the unbeliever. Dear Lord, there's only, there's only something for the believer. All of this is, is, uh, is, a, is a display outwardly of weakness, but inwardly a display of power to the inner man. Who is faith. And so may it be, O God, to us as we close out our our worship service, the Lord's Supper, may it strengthen us in the inner man and cause us to thrive and to flourish in the grace of faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.